Good morning, church. Merry Christmas Eve and happy fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, we get to conclude our, our preaching through Advent on Christmas Eve, which is particularly special in my opinion. Uh, but we're also concluding the book of Ruth because that is the book we've been uh, studying and preaching through as a church for Advent. And for those of you who are, are visiting today or have not been here for the other sermons, uh, you may be wondering, what does the book of Ruth, a, a tiny little book found uh, in the pages of the Old Testament between the Judges and between 1 Samuel, what does that have to do with Advent and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so um, before we dive into our text this morning, I'm going to give us a recap of all that we've seen so far in the drama of the book of Ruth. So in chapter 1, we learn of a family whose uh, patriarch is Elimelech. And they journey into the land of Moab because there's a famine within Israel. They are, they are Ephathrites, which is a clan within Bethlehem. They leave Bethlehem and they journey into Moab, which is not a good thing per se, and it's an act of desperation. Moab is a distant cousin to Israel, but they often opposed Israel throughout their history. And so the Moabites are foreigners and strangers to the people of God and to the promises of God. And yet while in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving behind Naomi and their two sons. The sons marry Moabite women, but then the sons too die, leaving their widowed mother Naomi with their now widowed wives and no children to their name. Upon hearing that the Lord has given food to Israel, Naomi chooses to return to Bethlehem and urges her daughters-in-law to leave her. One does, but Ruth stays. And Ruth, a Moabite woman, says this, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth's commitment to Naomi is practically unheard of. She lost her husband, just like Naomi, and Leveret marriage law instructed that she remarry a brother of her deceased husband. But Naomi had no other children, nor did she have, in particular, any other sons. And so Ruth had every legal right to depart. And yet she chose to stay. She chose to stay. And in chapter, chapter 2, we see that after returning to Bethlehem, Naomi is bitter at the hand of providence dealt to her by God. Her family left the land in order to survive, and she ends up losing almost everyone she loves. She tells the women of Bethlehem upon her return that she is now bitter, for she left full, but has returned empty. Ruth, however, in love and service to Naomi, immediately begins to go and provide for them both by gleaning after 
the barley harvest. She was picking up the scraps that the sheavers left behind during the barley harvest. While working hard, Ruth was seen by a man named Boaz, a relative of Elimelech. And in sincere kindness, Boaz ensures that she continues to collect more than enough grain for both Naomi and herself. Naomi continues to see Boaz's extreme kindness towards her and Ruth, and the dots begin to connect in her mind, for she knows that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer within their clan. A kinsman redeemer is one that has the legal right to acquire property and inheritance lost through death. And so that's a very, that's a huge theme in this book. Then in chapter 3, we see Naomi's plan, after she's connected these dots, we see the plan begin to unfold. As she urges Ruth to approach Boaz in the middle of the night in order to hopefully be taken as his wife. Boaz is honored by Ruth's faithfulness and this gesture of love. And so he sets in his heart to redeem both Naomi and Ruth. He sets in his heart to purchase that which Naomi is about to lose and acquire Ruth as his wife in the process. But there's just one hiccup, one little detail in the way. There's another man whom is closer in relation to Elimelech than Boaz. And the right to redemption goes first to him. And this is where we're picking up this morning in the text of our sermon. And so if you would, please rise if you are able at the reading of God's word. Ruth chapter 4. I'll read, we're going to be in the whole chapter this morning, but I'll read to verse 12, and the rest we'll see as, as we go. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. And from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily of Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us, it informs us, it reproves us, it educates us, it convicts us, and it reveals to us the glory and goodness that you have shown us in your work of redemption. I pray this morning you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might behold your wonders in the law. Lord, I pray that you would um, soften our hearts, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, and that we would grow into the maturity that is measured by his stature, and that we would behold you as you are. Thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for uniting our hearts with one another as we are united to you. May you have your will and your way among us. It's in the name of Christ Jesus I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So chapter four is the last chapter of our drama. And the chapter does two things. And so the sermon this morning will have two, two main emphases. The first is this that we'll see. It's a, a bit of a case study almost to Boaz's actions in acquiring the right to redemption. And so for a good portion of our time this morning, we will be looking at Boaz as a model to us. But also the chapter ends by reiterating the meta-narrative of the drama all the while and giving us a cliffhanger almost of the work of redemption that God has been producing since the beginning of time. And so the drama of this story is both a microcosm and a taste of the redemption to come by the hand of the Lord. And it's there that we'll see why is this a Christmas story? How does this relate to Advent and to the coming of Christ? And so I promise you we will see that this morning. And so if you look at verses 1 through 6, After weeks of observing Ruth's loving kindness towards Naomi and after seeing Ruth model faith and courage as she approaches him in the night at great risk to her and Naomi's reputation, Boaz now has what looks to be the answer to everyone's problems and it's at his very fingertips. We know that 
Ruth approached him in the night. She laid herself at his feet to his surprise. And as an honorable and a virtuous man, he asked her, what are you doing here? What do you want? And she offered the right to redemption. But Boaz knows that there's another in the way, another redeemer, kinsman redeemer, who is relationally closer to Elimelech. And so if you've been, if you've been reading throughout this book as we've been preaching, you've undoubtedly noticed that there's already a connection happening with Ruth and Boaz. He noticed her hard work and her faithfulness. He observed her loving kindness toward her mother-in-law. He is honored that she would even approach him. And the solution to everyone's problem, to Naomi's property problem, to Ruth's uh, loss of husband problem and to what seems to be Boaz has no kindred himself. He has no inheritance yet. He's considered a worthy man and yet as far as we know he's never been married and therefore has no children. And the solution is for him to marry Ruth. It's right there. But there's a problem. There's a hiccup. And as we've seen, that hiccup is the other potential kinsman redeemer. So we have this buildup of chapters 1 through 3. And we get this close, this close to the solution. This close to the resolve. If you're familiar with literary devices, you have this buildup, this buildup, this buildup, this climax. And then boom, a resolve. And the story ends. And we think, here's the resolve. She loves him. He loves her. She's virtuous. He's virtuous. She has faith. He has faith. This is going to happen. And then, no, we're that close. We're that close. But there's one more problem. Have you ever been in this sort of situation? I think you have. The kind where you have a dilemma and you've already schemed in your mind what the quick and perhaps reasonable solution to the said dilemma is. But then you realize your problem has another problem because your quick solution is itself problematic. You find yourself in a situation where doing the right thing may not produce the results you want. It might, but it might not. And that's what scares you. And you know you can just skirt around the finer details of your dilemma to produce the results that you believe are most beneficial to all. This sort of dilemma is common to the human condition. When we find ourselves in this sort of predicament, we can either do what we presume to be okay because it doesn't hurt anybody. Someone won't be any wiser. No harm, no foul. Right? Ignorance is bliss, that sort of thing. Or, or we can entrust ourselves to Christ and do that which is right in His eyes rather than our own. Because the sin at heart, when we want to just skirt around the details or just do something and deal with the consequences later, 
the sin at that heart is the sin of presumption. We presume that fudging the details here or acting before the dust settles there is okay because God is merciful or because it's so obvious that his hand is in this. It can't, there can't be any other option. Everything's lined up. This is what I should do in such and such a way. And yet, presumption is at work. Presumption is at work. This is a sin that is replete within the scriptures. You, you have to pay quite a bit of attention to find it, though. But Boaz, being a virtuous man, a faithful man, undoubtedly knows the law of God. In Numbers 15, the law of God says this, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, that's an idiom for presumption, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Again, the scriptures are replete with examples of this very thing happening. We see the sin of presumption starting in the Garden of Eden. Both Adam and Eve presume that their standing, their gracious standing with God will carry them through the disobedience of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They presume there are no consequences because we already have relationship with God. The prophets throughout Israel deal with this sin themselves. There's one prophet who the Lord said, go to this city, speak your word, and go and leave. Don't turn around. He leaves, he goes, he speaks his word, he leaves, and then another prophet decides to trick him and says, the Lord actually told me you could, you could stay a while. And the guy's like, well, yeah, you're a prophet too. I guess I'll listen. And the Lord strikes him dead because the Lord gave him a word, a particular word. And he presumed that the Lord had changed his mind because another man said so. We see this in King Saul who presumed he was obedient when he did not destroy all of the Amalekites but kept the king alive. And he also offered sacrifice without waiting on the prophet Samuel. And what does God say to him? He says, you're done. I'm removing the anointing. And the, Samuel the prophet says, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. It doesn't matter what you think you're giving God. 
If you don't obey him at his word, it means nothing. And even the nations surrounding Israel acted in presumption. Read the prophets. Read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and see how the Lord speaks to the nations. He lets them rise to the highest of heights that they might do his bidding. And then they believe. They believe they've earned that position. And he humbles them by letting another nation come and destroy them. And the Lord says, who can turn back my hand? So here we have Boaz, and he's in this very same dilemma. He has two options. He could redeem Naomi and marry Ruth in secret, which would be a righteous thing to do. And the, fact, the act of redemption and marrying this Moabite widow would be in and of itself righteous. But he'd have to do it in secret. He knows that they clearly love one another and that they have a legitimate connection. There's already a bond. This option, once done, couldn't even be reversed because the marriage covenant would make the redemption solemn could be a done deal and this other guy would be none the wiser but but doing this is dishonoring to the other kinsmen at best and is downright deceitful at worst so his second option is this he could do what the law of God required and offer the first choice to the other kinsman who legally has the first right to redemption, risking losing everything. This risks everything. But as we already know, Boaz does the right thing. In fact, he models for us genuine integrity for from the beginning of this dilemma, he had already settled in his heart to do the right thing. Notice in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz has this sort of integrity because his faith is biblical. He's not trying to scheme or produce redemption by his own hand, but instead he trusts that true redemption comes only from the Lord. And what the Lord ordains is always good. This sort of faith the kind that fears God in honoring his word is not a passive or dead faith either. In fact, we see quite the opposite from Boaz. Immediately, the next morning, he goes to the town gate. And he goes there to lawfully settle this matter. 
He does everything according to the law of God and to the customs of the land. And he does so in order to remain completely above reproach. Boaz shows for us that biblical faith, the kind that fears God, is both proactive and patient. It's both proactive and patient. What do I mean by this? Notice what he does. He goes to the gate immediately. He waits for the other kinsmen. He calls the elders of the city. And he offers the right to redemption up with no perceived ulterior motive. He doesn't go to the man at his home, bang on his door and say, hey, hey, can you do me a favor? You know, I'm in this situation and technically you have the upper hand, but uh, can, can you cut me some slack? No, he doesn't do that. There's no backdoor deal being made. He doesn't say to the man, hey, I'll pay you something to offer up your right to redemption. I'll buy you out. doesn't happen. Boaz, in this situation, he, he wisely gives the other redeemer all the pertinent information, and he waits for the answer. He waits. There's no anxiousness at work here. He is working proactively. He went because he knows what he wants. But there's no anxious toil because he knows this redemption will come from the Lord if it is to be mine. See, faith, faith as the Bible communicates is, is a faith that rightly apprehends not only what is permissible within God's law, but also what is possible. Boaz did not give up his desires in despondency, but instead pursued them in a way that was completely obedient to God and honoring to his fellow man. Do you see that? Rather than falling into a pit of despair like Naomi had, he says, I will settle this matter in the morning. Because he knows the God of his salvation. And he entrusts himself completely to him in all matters. Boaz sought a redemption that only the Lord could provide. Boaz demonstrates for us the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. And now as we move into verse 7, we see the reward of his faithful obedience. We see the reward. And what is that reward? What is the result of his faith-filled efforts? The Lord mercifully grants Boaz the desires of his heart. 
Boaz sought first and foremost to obey God rather than to satisfy his own desires. That's faith. He set it upon his heart to obey first. He submitted his desires to God rather than trying to work God into his desires. And so now, in mercy, God ordains it that the agreement between Boaz and this other man is struck in the presence of the elders of Bethlehem. And Boaz is now officially, officially, in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of the people, the designated redeemer of both Naomi and Ruth. But the reward of Boaz's obedience is not simply in obtaining what he desired. No, he actually receives much more than that. For all the people at the gate bless him in the name of the Lord. Notice, starting in verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. They mean that quite literally because Jacob was their husband and his name given to him was Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is a turning of the tide in Boaz's story. And here's why. Throughout the drama, we have seen that Boaz himself has been the primary blesser. He's, from the very start, the description is that he is a worthy man. So we see he is a worthy man who blesses his servants. And he is the one who lavishly blesses Naomi and Ruth. In this whole book we see that not only did Boaz desire the blessing of the Lord for others, but he was willing to be the instrument of blessing all the while. This is the kind of righteousness that he had. He didn't just offer his lips in blessing people, but he offered his hands, his resources. He was an honorable man. He himself became a blessing in the hands of the Lord. And so now the roles are reversing. And it's Boaz who is now receiving the blessing from all those gathered at the gate in Bethlehem. And notice, their benediction, benediction and blessing is the same thing. So their benediction not only invokes honor and uprightness for him, but specifically calls for him to be blessed with a family. And so at this moment, we see both God's goodness and his justice. To Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. 
And the author of Hebrews tells us that God rewards those who seek him in faith. God has indeed rewarded Boaz, the one who is always willing to bless his fellow man and be the blesser all the while, is now receiving the blessing. And this blessing contains within it his honor, his dignity, his uprightness, and a promise of progeny. For as far as we know, he had no other child. And now the Lord is rewarding him for his faith and his faithful obedience. And it's not just that we see. But at this moment, if you've noticed the, the meta-narrative going on, Boaz's character arc begins to close because there is another redeemer on the horizon. You may have thought this whole time that Boaz is the star and yet his storyline is starting to close and there's another redeemer on the horizon and we're going to dive into that now. In verse 13, we see the promise of progeny. Progeny just means your heirs, your posterity. The promise of progeny. Boaz and Ruth marry. I'll read this since we didn't earlier. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Boaz and Ruth marry. The Lord grants them a child according to the blessing that Boaz had just received. And behold, nine months later, Ruth bears a son. And upon this birth, another benediction comes. Another benediction comes. But this time, it is from the women of Bethlehem who in chapter 1 did not even recognize Naomi. She returns and they ask, is this Naomi? She's been gone a decade. She, she was not recognizable to them and they showed no mercy to her. But now, 
these women are offering a benediction. They who, would, who did not rejoice at her return now rejoice at the work of the Lord in her midst. Naomi, who journeyed to Moab full but came back empty, is now receiving the blessing of a redeemer. Of this redeemer, it is said that he restores her life and nourishes her in her old age. The Lord, who most certainly emptied her, has now provided her with redemption that she might be full again. That she might be full again. And so we have another resolution in the drama of this story. Naomi, who was dealt a dark and heavy hand from the Lord, now is given the hope of life once again. But who is the real instrument of Naomi's redemption? Notice this. If we look at the text closely, it's not Boaz. Instead, the true kinsman redeemer for Naomi is her grandson. Did you notice that? The women say this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name, the name of the redeemer, be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi's grandson is the redeemer. How is this possible? Nowhere in the scriptures do you see a, a child, nevertheless an infant, ascribed as a kinsman redeemer. He has no ability to do anything just yet. The whole point of a kinsman redeemer is to act on the right to redemption in order to carry the family line. But yet, this benediction, these women who, in one sense, cursed Naomi earlier, are now being prophets for us in their blessing. Because of him, of her grandson, that is, it is called upon that his name be renowned in all Israel. And through him, Naomi is to receive the restoration of life and nourishment in her old age. Notice the subtle yet substantial differences in the two blessings that we've read. In Boaz's blessing, it is asked that his name, Boaz's name, be renowned in all of Bethlehem. But Bethlehem's a tiny little town in Judah. But in Naomi's blessing of her grandson, it is asked that his name be renowned in all of Israel. Wow. We've seen Boaz as a true hero, a true man's man, this entire narrative. 
and his blessing just goes to the extent of Bethlehem. But of this son, of Boaz's son, it is said his name will be renowned in all of Israel. To Naomi's grandson, that is Boaz and Ruth's son, it has been given to have the greater portion. And so what do they name the child? They name him Obed. Hold on to this. We're going to leave his name for a little bit, but I want you to hold on to it. The name of the child is Obed, which means to serve. If, you've, if you remember throughout our series, names mean something. There's a lot of literary devices being employed in this drama. It's a very unique book in the canon of Scripture. Names mean a lot. So why the name to serve? There are, names always mean something in the Scriptures, always. And the he- Hebrews were quite literal in naming people and things, Okay? So you would think it would have the name of we celebrate the Lord or God is good or blessed be the Lord. Something that connotates that. And, and yet his name is to serve. That's its literal translation, to serve. But this word does carry with it a sense of worship. You can think of it this way. In, in the same way that the priests of the tabernacle work and serve the Lord... In that sense, they are worshiping the Lord. So there's this connotation of worship with his name. And so Obed's name, which means to serve or to work, to toil, okay, carries with it the the significance of worship through work, worship through service, worship through toil. Hold on to that. Hold on to all that. Obed, for us, is an exclamation mark to the entire drama. For through him, we see life, blessing, and inheritance restored for Naomi, who has been thoroughly emptied by the Lord. In a real sense, she had abandoned worship, but now she can worship again in spirit and in truth, because Obed has restored to her her life and has made her full. Through Obed, we also see the permanent engrafting of a Moabite woman into the family tree of God. Forever, forever. We see it, in, we see it here, and if we look in the genealogies of Christ, Ruth's name is mentioned. Forever, Ruth will be remembered as a faithful servant who in loving kindness chose to serve the one true God and his people. And also through Obed, we see the blessing and reward of Boaz's obedience and how God graciously repays those who seek him in faith. This is quite astounding in my opinion. Notice that Malon's name is not listed in the genealogy, but Boaz's name is. 
in redeeming Ruth, Boaz was to perpetuate Malon's name. But he's not in this genealogy, nor is he in Christ's genealogy. But Boaz is. As Boaz's reward, the Lord chose to honor him by highlighting his name in the genealogy that leads to Christ. Boaz, who was without a son, now has a real inheritance, and it doesn't belong to another man's name. And lastly, through Obed, we see that truly it is the Lord who is the source of all redemption. If you look closely throughout the book, there are actually several redeemers, okay? Of course, the right, the, the proper title of kinsman redeemer only belongs to two people in the story, Boaz and the other redeemer who is not named. But if you look at the thematic elements of the text, Ruth serves as a kind of redeemer for Naomi in showing her steadfast loving kindness when Naomi was at her worst. Boaz serves as a redeemer for both Naomi and for Ruth, first in richly blessing them with food and protection, and secondly in actually becoming their kinsman redeemer by purchasing Naomi's land and marrying Ruth. And finally, Obed, as we have seen, serves as a redeemer for Naomi for Ruth and for Boaz. Yet all these redeemers are simply instruments of redemption, for they are merely servants in the hand of God. And it is God Himself who is the source of all redemption. It is God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so as we, as we come to a conclusion, keep in mind what I told you to hold on to, Obed's name. Obed serves not just as a sign for Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, but he serves as a sign for all the world, including you and I. For the promise of progeny and the hope of redemption does not stop with him, but continues down the line to King David himself, who was, who was a redeemer for all of Israel. But David was a man like us, incapable of redeeming Israel from the root of all suffering. Therefore, God promised David that he would have a son to sit on his throne forever and that this son would be the hope of all God's people. This promised son, like Obed and David, was born in lowly Bethlehem, the city of David. Also, like Obed, the name. This promised son did not come to be served but to serve. And his service was to give his life as a ransom for many. So unlike Obed, this promised son is Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
the only begotten Son of the Father, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. It is through this promised Son, Jesus, that God has freely given us redemption in the truest and fullest sense. No matter the year you've had, you may have been dealt the highest highs or the lowest lows, yet what the prophet says is true of us all. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is, this son, the iniquity of us all. So we rejoice, church, for though our sins be like scarlet, through Jesus Christ they shall be as white as snow. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the redemption given to us in Christ, your Son. We praise you that he is God and man, fully capable of redeeming mankind from our plot. We have transgressed against your holy law. We have rebelled against your statutes and your commandments. And yet, in mercy, Christ has come. May we repent of our sin and of ourselves and trust in Christ always, who is Lord of all. May we find ourselves hidden in him through faith. We praise you that you have been working redemption for your people since the beginning. And that this drama of redemption is a foreshadow and a real taste of the redemption that is now ours in Christ Jesus. Holy be your name. And we praise you for your work of goodness and grace towards us. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen.